0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, and I've decided to preach on the entire book of Matthew. So um, before we get started, why don't we pray? Uh, Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for your great love for us that you've shown us through Jesus Christ, and I thank you that in and through him you've gathered us together as your people this morning pray, Father, that through our prayers, through our singing, through, our, through the preaching, through communion and giving and, and all that we do here this morning, that you remind us of the gospel, that you remind us of what Jesus has come to do and how that affects us and how it's good news for us. I pray that you'd remind us of your great love for us and how, just how great it is, just how deep and wide it really is. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be stirring in us. Lord, and that you would say only what you would have said; that you would have us here, only what you would have each one of us here. We know that you can open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds to see Jesus, and we pray for that. Um, pray that you be glorified in this place this morning. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're in Matthew nine, uh, one through thirty-four, which is practically the whole chapter. So that's good. Uh, if you don't know where Matthew is, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, uh, and we're going to be there today um, for the most part. We'll just stay right there in chapter nine. So if you can find the New Testament, then Matthew's the first bi- uh, first book, and it's easy to find. Here's what I want to ask us this morning: Is do you need Jesus? Do you really need Jesus? Like, do you really do you really need him? I said a couple of weeks ago as we began this series on, on a leader word following uh, that we actually all think that we're a lot more like Jesus than we really are. And when the truth is that the, the, the world has far more influence on our lives than we realize. And in many areas of our life, we ignorantly follow the way of the world because we assume we follow Jesus enough already. Right? We all pretty much feel like we're pretty good. We think we are more like him than we really are. And when we think we're more like him than we really are, then we miss how awful we really are. That's the point. Now, one of my favorite shows of all time is House. I don't know if you're familiar with it. If you're not, it's about this really brilliant doctor who can like diagnose whatever, health issues, better than other doctors, right? Uh, but he's really super smart guy. This guy's name is Dr. House. Uh, and he always seems to be able to solve these diagnostics problems. And, uh, but, but house is kind of a miserable guy, you know? And it's really everybody... But you kind of love him. You know how TV shows do that to you? They make you really like these miserable characters. But he has a leg injury and it causes lots of pain. Anyways, he's addicted to Vicodin, right? He's addicted to painkillers. And like I said, he's brilliant and he can diagnose all kinds of physical health problems and he, and he gets all into everybody else's mind but he fails to acknowledge that the drugs are more than just pain relievers for him, that they actually have become like a crutch for his emotional and spiritual brokenness, right? This is like, the, the, throughout the whole series, this is what we, this is what makes us keep watching. So a few times throughout the show, his addiction comes to a head, something happens, and he's forced to acknowledge that he actually has a problem with his addiction. And these are the glimmers of hope in the show, right? This is what keeps us watching, this is what... We want, we want the main character to get his act together. and he, But then he tries to fix himself over and over and over again throughout the whole series, and it always just falls apart. He never has any real success. And sometimes he tries to fix himself, sometimes he gets in a relationship or something, and you think, well, maybe she can fix him. And that doesn't work either. My point is, it's not about house, right? It's a, this is a thing that a lot of TV shows do and a lot of stories do. The reason we all stick around for things like that is because we... Identify with those characters, I think. I mean, if he could get himself together, if he could get better, or maybe if she could just get together and get on track, then what would that mean for us? Because we see ourselves in them, right? I'm like that. I think we all are. I think that we're all like House. We're all like those characters and we can identify them. Most of the time, I think that everything's fine and that I have things under control. Every once in a while, I get convicted about how I ought to be better or how I better, should be more godly, right? But then I set, set out on my own with my own plans to try to make myself right. Um, And I ignorantly go about in my self-righteousness. I'm assuming that I'm becoming more and more godly, more and more like Christ, and I'm fixing the problems. I'm finally dealing with it. Thank you, God, for convicting me of the thing. Now I can go handle it. Uh, But I'm a lot less like Jesus than I think I am. I'm a lot less godly than I think I am. And ultimately, I don't change. I just forget about my problems eventually, and I slide back comfortably into ignorance. I slide back comfortably into believing that I'm good enough, and I just it's very comfortable to forget that I have any issues at all. If there's one thing that I just want us to take away from this passage this morning, before we even get started, if there's one thing that I want us to take away, it's what I've taken away as I've been preparing for this message, and it's changed some stuff in me, it's the one thing I want us to get is this, that Jesus didn't come to get you to change. Jesus didn't come to get me to change. Jesus came to change me. If you don't hear anything else this morning, you can just take this, and just take it back to God and pray over it, and go back to these scriptures and think through this, and like let God work on it with you. Jesus didn't come to change you or to get you to change yourself. Jesus came to change you. That's huge. The implications of that are huge. So let's take a look at what we're gonna at this passage we're we're in today. Um, I think we're gonna find that the people that Jesus. Deals with here aren't so different that they need the same, the same message. So Matthew 9, 1 through 13, I'll just read that, that portion again. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And then the Pharisees saw this, and they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What I really want us to see here and I know that we're just taking a huge massive chunk of Matthew and I, just for the record, I know there's a lot here, but these couple chapters of Matthew episode by episode kind of almost seem all over the place, but they're not. They're not disconnected. And so what we really want is like through this series to take some some bigger pictures and show you the connection and show you what Jesus is really doing really encourage you to go back and like study some of this even deeper on your own and like to go back and check out these episodes. There's a lot going on here that we can get into, but, but what we see here in these first 13 verses, what I really want us to see is how clearly Jesus is defining his mission by what he's going about doing. Like, like last week, Reggie talked about how Jesus confronts the world's expectations with, the reali- with his own reality. And this week we're going to see him continue to confront what the world expected of him by clearly defining his mission in both word and action. So Jesus heals the paralytic, but first he says, your sins are forgiven. We know that all of our body ailments, all of our malfunctions, everything that's wrong with us, our sickness, our diseases, is a result of our brokenness, is a result, is a result of our fallenness, it's a result of sin. Whether it's a direct result of some sin that you've committed and then gotten sick or whatever, or maybe it's just a result of sin being in the world and the fact that we live in a broken world, that all these things are amongst us and are breaking us and are killing us. But we know that all these things are in the world and it's because of our broken state. So now Jesus could just heal the man. We've already seen him heal some people, right? We know that he can heal symptoms of the greater problem. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes right for the root of the problem. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And he forgives the man's sins. In so doing, he's revealing what work he is going about. He's revealing what his mission is. To deal with sin and to transform sinners. The mission of Jesus is to deal with sin and to transform sinners. Sinners. It's reemphasized as Jesus goes on in verse 9 through 13 and calls Matthew, who's sitting at the tax booth, and says to him, follow me, right? So Matthew gets up and he follows him. And the next thing we know, Jesus is reclining with tax collectors and sinners, eating with tax collectors and sinners, hanging out in the home with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees question the disciples about why he would hang out with such people. Like Pharisees, not doing that. Right? That should be religious. We've got no time for that. Uh, so Jesus hears what they're asking his disciples, and he speaks up in verse 13, and we just read this, but this is what he says. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's that last piece that like leaves a question. Why would he say that? Right? Why would he say... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who's righteous? That's the question I was left with. Uh, In Romans, I gotta find it here. Romans three ten through eleven, just a few books over. Paul uh, address. Paul's quoting from the Old Testament, and he says this: As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks. For God. And he's quoting the Old Testament. Like Pharisees, they knew this stuff. It's in, it's in the Psalms. They get it. Nobody's righteous. But Jesus says, I came for the sinners. I didn't come for the righteous. And just a little bit ago, like a few chapters back, when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, for I tell you, he's telling to the, the crowd, right? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I just find that interesting, right? That he just told the Pharisees here in chapter 9 that he didn't come for the righteous, he came for the sinners. But we know that nobody's righteous. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he's here, he's saying that he's here for the sinners, not the righteous. But he just said up on the mountain, that nobody whose righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees will enter the kingdom and then later on in the chapter he says therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect i just i guess the question is who isn't sick who isn't a sinner who's righteous there's no one nobody's not in need of jesus but well, he asked the Pharisees this, and he kind of leaves it open-ended with the Pharisees, and I don't really know whether they get it or not. I don't know if the Pharisees know they're sick or not. But in his answer, he has again stated his mission through both word and deed. Jesus came to deal with sin and change sinners. Sinners are the only people that Jesus came for. Sinners are the only people that Jesus came for. So we have to ask, did Jesus come for me? Did Jesus come for you? Do you really need Jesus? I mean, he may as well just ask the Pharisees that right then. I came for the sick. I came for those who were sinners. I didn't come for the righteous. Do you need me? Did I come for you? We'll continue on in Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, John the Baptist, saying... Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So the disciples of John the Baptist, uh, Baptist come to him. They show up asking some questions, right? And Matthew's going to bring them back into the picture in just a couple chapters, at the beginning of chapter 11. And what I want us to see, just for just really quickly, and we, we can't like really go too far into it, but is that... Matthew kind of uses this, this encounter with, the John, with John the Baptist's disciples to book in something here. They've come asking a question, and Jesus has said something. Then he's going to do some stuff, and then they're going to come back, and he's going, they're going to ask some questions, and he's going to answer because of what he's just done. But before we get into all that, uh, what's, in, what's in between the book ends, bookends and what it says, let's just see what they ask here. Why do we and the Pharisees fast... But your disciples do not fast. And then Jesus says something that I think maybe we can take for granted. But if, we, if it was grasped by those in his company at the time, they might just think he was a little bit crazy. It's just really radical stuff that he's saying. He says, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Basically, Jesus is announcing that he's the Savior that they've all been waiting for, that he's the one that the Old Testament has been pointing towards. It's not called the Old Testament to them, but he's the one that their uh, scriptures have pointed to. He's the one that the prophets foretold, that the Messiah has come, that the Savior is with us, that he's the one who was prophesied about to bring us back into right relationship with the Father. He talks about then he's going to depart, and they can fast then, but not right now because this is the time for celebration. And now, on this side of the cross, of this side of the resurrection, and on this side, us. Like, on this side of the giving of the Holy Spirit, we can look back at this and kind of get more of a picture of what Jesus is saying.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That when he talks about pouring new wine into old wineskins, he was announcing that he came to usher in the new covenant. If you don't get any of the language, it's just wineskins are just made out of, like, a tanned animal hide that over time could crack and get brittle, right? And, uh, and so you wouldn't take new wine that still need to go through the process, you know, need to ferment, whatsoever, and put that in the old wineskins, because as that process happened, then it could brittle, it could get cracked, it could burst, and all the wine would be spilled in, the wineskin would be gone, uh, would not, would be ruined, sorry, right? So, we can kind of see that he's talking about the good news of ushering in the new promised covenant that's going to deal with sin once and for all, which is something that the old law and old covenant could mm-hmm. never do. Right? But these disciples of John the Baptist are like, hey, why aren't mm-hmm. you guys fasting like us? And Jesus says, because I'm here. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm here to deal with sin once and for all and transform sinners into right relationship with, my, with the Father. Mm-hmm. And this is a cause for celebration and not for mourning, but he kind of says it in some cryptic language that uh, you know maybe they didn't quite get and they're not on the side of things. Just understand that it may not have been quite as easy for them to hear what he was saying. But we really don't know whether they got it or not. Because as soon as he's making this announcement, they get interrupted. But I think Matthew places this conversation right here for a reason. That in our reading, he's like stating something and then he's going to answer something and ask a question. Like I said, this conversation kind of acts as a bookend. Basically, John's disciples asked this question, and this is bookend one. Why don't you fast like we fast? And Jesus says, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior who came to deal with sin and transform sinners. And this was really good news. And it's too good a news to fast because of. It's news that means celebration. It's news that means let's throw a party. It's not news that says let's mourn and let's fast. And then somebody comes and asks for help, and we're immediately carried into the next few episodes of Jesus' actions, where these actions are becoming evidence for the questions that John the Baptist's disciples will ask when they come back in chapter 11. Just hang with me for a minute. I promise this is all going to wrap up. So in chapter 11, the second book in, John sends the disciples again, and Jesus sends them back to John to tell him all that they've seen and heard. So we're just going to read real quick because we didn't have enough verses this morning. I'm going to read a few more. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We'll come back to this passage in a couple weeks. So I'm not going to spend too much time here, but but what are John the Baptist and John the Baptist's disciples concerned about? What do they want to know? They want to know is Jesus the one who they were supposed to be expecting? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the Savior? Is he a leader worth following? And how can they know that he can be trusted? And then Jesus answers and appeals to the evidence that he has just demonstrated in this next few set, few verses in chapter 9 and, and over 10 also. These miracles, many of which are going to happen right here, giving sight to the blind, cleansing lepers, we just talked about that a couple weeks ago, raising the dead, the deaf hearing. He shows evidence of his mission, of the mission that he's on by going about the work that only God could give the authority to do. Only God could give the authority to do these things. Um, He goes about the mission that only a God-empowered mission could go about. And he answers to John and the disciples. And his answer to John and his disciples is that he is who he says he is because he's, he's not just saying that he is who he says he is. But because he's proving it in action. He came to deal with sin. He came to transform sinners and to usher them into the right relationship with God. And he can be trusted with the vision because he's unswervingly devoted to it and because he's proving himself able to do it. That's a lot, I know. I'm sorry. But I just want to make this point. It may not be how anybody expects it to look, it may not have looked how anybody expected it to look then. John the Baptist like went before Christ preaching that it was him and he said it was him already, right? And he still got questions and the disciples still have questions and nobody's quite sure what's happening here. It doesn't necessarily look like anybody expected to look but Jesus came to change sinners and he was changing sinners like nobody else could. Jesus came to came came to change sinners and he came to change sinners only and he was changing sinners in ways that nobody could explain so a good question to ask for us is whether we need to be changed by Jesus I mean he's demonstratively capable of changing us but he didn't come to get us to change ourselves right he didn't come to get us to change ourselves he came to change us there's a big difference Let's take a quick look at these miracles in in chapter 9, 18 through 31. While he was saying these things to them, to John the Baptist's disciples, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman, who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if, only, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and in seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, may be, be it be done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. Again, there's a lot there. There's something in each one of those episodes that we could spend a lot of time and effort on. Mm-hmm. just want to show you one big picture that maybe will help you as you do Bible studies at home and with your MC and with your family to like, put these pieces together. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I lost my place. All right. mm-hmm. First of all, each of these healings is proclaiming who Jesus is. And what his mission is. Just as as it's referenced in chapter 11 like we just saw, right? To John the Baptist and his disciples. But what we also have to see here is that he is the only hope for these hopeless people. He's the only hope for these hopeless people. The ruler came and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. What other hope did this man have? We have to ask that question. What other hope does this man have? Where could he go? His daughter's dead I can't talk a lot about that or else I'll just probably break down but what other hope would you have your daughter's dead I don't know how much hope this man really believed that Jesus could do but he actually said if you come then she'll live but he believed enough just to come to Jesus he believed enough to come to Christ and the woman with the discharge of blood says for she said to herself if I only touch his garment I'll be made well I'm sorry, but this has been going on for 12 years, right? And nobody's been able to heal her. Nothing's been able to make her better. What kind of hope does she have? What kind of hope is it that she's putting in Jesus? What kind of experience? uh, What have we experienced that we believe like her? That if we could just touch the robe of Jesus, everything, he would change us. And Jesus tells her that her faith has made her well. Her faith. The thing that made her well was just, what is her faith? It's just a belief enough to come and like try to touch his robe. It's just a belief enough to come to him. And then he credits the blind man who he heals with the same faith. This is what I want us to look at. I think one of our biggest problems, and we hit on this at the beginning, I think one of our biggest problems, maybe much like the Pharisees in this whole chapter, is that we don't feel very hopeless in all reality. Like, we don't really feel very hopeless. We think that, I'm not sure we need a lot of hope. Or do we feel like we need a lot of hope? We actually all think that we're a lot more like Jesus than we really are. That we're a lot better off than we really are. I think that we can pretty much see our way out of any trial or any struggle that comes our way. Like, we can kind of, like, imagine how we can get out of it. We can even make plans for it. Or at least we think we can uh, I kind of have to I've asked myself this question, right? How often does a trial or a struggle or something tough come my way that puts me in a bad spot and the first thing I do is to drop to my knees and pray? How often does something come your way that's hard to deal with, it, a struggle or trial, whatever, and the first thing you do is drop and go to Jesus and go to God? I, it's not. I mean... I might think I have my finances together and then a bill comes, right? And it's like, oh, but then I just go back and I I make my plans. Or, I don't know, pick your your thing. What do you think you have together and then all of a sudden you don't? And what's your first instinct? To figure it out. Or is your first instinct to drop and go to Jesus? We don't feel hopeless. I think we feel downright self-righteous. I know I do. But it's really only those who realize that they have no hope in themselves that end up turning to Jesus. It's really only those with no hope that turn to Jesus. And time and time again, Jesus reaches out and he touches them and he heals them and he's their hope and he does what he says he can do. And he came to change them and he came to change sinners and he does it. And Jesus didn't come to get us to change, he came to change us. He didn't come to tell you what to do so that you could just go fix it yourself. He came to fix us at the core. He came not to just, like, heal the symptom, but to, like, repair us at the core. He came to change us. You see what I'm saying? If we think think ourselves righteous, if we think we've got it all together, if we think that we can see our way out of a situation, we'll put our faith in ourselves every time. Even if we're convicted in some way to be better, even if at some point we realize that we're not all that we thought we were and if there's something that we could improve upon, thank you, God, for the conviction. Thank you, Jesus, for the conviction. I'll go put it together. But Jesus didn't come to get us to change. He came to change us. We're going to look at this very last bit of Matthew 9, 32 through 34. I'm going to make this short. I know it's a lot of Scripture. Again, I hope that we can see this this point. We're just going to... All right, Matthew nine thirty two through 34. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. I'll keep it short. I know we can dive into this more. I want you to dive into it more. I'm praying that we go back to this throughout the week. But there's really just one thing that I want us to grapple with this morning out of this whole thing, and I want us to tie this this whole episode together to see a couple of things. But this is the one thing I want us to grapple with today is do we marvel at Jesus? Do we come to the conclusion that he's who he says he is and that he can do what he says he does and that we believe that we're in great need of him or are we like the Pharisees who'd really rather not be confronted or changed by him right do you think he's a leader worth following do you think Jesus is a leader worth following do you need to follow a leader do you need somebody else to follow the Pharisees I don't think thought he was a leader worth following they said that he was about the work of the prince of demons but I don't want us to believe they said that he was about the work of the prince of demons. And I think I will read that and I hear that and immediately think myself better than the Pharisees. Let's not think we're any better than they are. Let's not think that we're more righteous than they are on our own. Because then we're in danger, again, of believing that Jesus came for sinners and not the righteous. Let's not believe, like the Pharisees, that we're more godly than Jesus is. That we're more capable than Jesus is. Jesus came for sinners only. So the question I'm just asking this morning through all this is, did he come for you? Jesus didn't come to get you to change yourself. He came to change you. Do you really need Jesus? Like, Do you really need him? Or can you do this on your own? Do you need hope? Are you hopeless? Or do you pretty much got it figured out? As we wrap up, I'm just asking, do you believe that his mission to deal with sin and heal the sinners is directed at you? Do you believe that he can really do what he says he can do? See, my personal experience, as I've alluded to, I think, a few times, is often like a conviction towards righteousness. Is a conviction towards getting some stuff straight is a conviction that maybe I'm not as great as I think I am, but I could fix it. And then I just feel left alone to make it right. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And I think we all do it, but that's not the gospel. He causes he calls his disciples to follow him and to submit all of life to him through the sermon on the mount and through his words and actions over these few chapters. And I know we've been talking we've been talking about that a lot lately, like to submit all of life to the person of Jesus Christ, right? and that that's what it means to, to be a disciple. But, but What does that really mean except to find that, he is, that we're completely hopeless and that he's our only hope and to turn from all the things we would put our hopes in and put our hopes in him? So for me, as I prep for this message, it caused me to really consider the gospel as, as it applies to me. And I've been asking myself the same question that I'm asking you to ask yourself, is what areas of life am I not submitting to Jesus Christ in? Like, where where is it that I'm not submitting to him in? And most of the time I just ask and go, yeah, I got that one, I got that one, I think. Um, Just move on, even though it's actually pretty hard to to find where you're hopeless, because I don't feel very hopeless. So I was asking myself over and over again, what areas of life am I not submitting to Jesus? And then I heard somebody ask this question of whether our lives were worth replicating. And I thought about it. What in my life is worth giving to others and what's not? It was a good way for me to picture it, I guess. Is our life worth replicating? What parts of my life are worth replicating? What's worth giving away and what's not? And I couldn't help but consider, I'm just going to get a little personal with you, So I'm sorry, but I couldn't help but think about my physical health. It isn't great, and it's been like a lifelong struggle for me, right? Mostly I'm mildly aware of it, you know, I kind of know that I struggle with my physical health, and, uh, and sometimes I get a little convicted about it, and I join the gym, and I eat a little better, and I do the thing, and maybe I cut off some pounds and lower my blood pressure and stuff like that, see a little bit of success. I hit, You know, but in the end, I usually end up just, like I said at the beginning, just kind of ignoring it eventually, becoming complacent, forgetting about it, thinking I'm actually pretty well off, And not dealing with it anymore. And uh, what I realized this week is that in this area of life, I've not turned to Jesus to change me. I've not turned to Jesus only to hear, I mean, I've turned to Jesus only to hear what I need to change, but I've not turned to Jesus to ask Him to change me. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that making plans are bad. I'm not saying that I don't need to exercise or to eat better. I'm just realizing that I really need Jesus to change me because I really can't change myself. So as I... The hardest part was to start thinking of practical implications for this message, right? Jesus came to change me. He didn't come to get me to change myself. How how does that turn out practically. I mean he's not walking right here. I can't just like reach out for his robe and, and everything's gonna be different. What do we what does that look like? Like I said, I don't think plans are bad. I don't think like going about some things are bad, but my plans now are not about remembering to run or remembering to exercise. My plans now are remembering to run to Jesus. Right? My plans now are about putting something in place to remember to run to him, to remember to go to him first, not to find my hope in myself, but to find hope in him, in everything, even the physical. So for me, it's like, uh, maybe Jesus tastes better than this Danish. I don't really eat Danishes, that's just a, you know. Do you need Jesus? Do you think he's a leader worth following? I think a good tool for assessment is one that I just used. Um, And it might just be asking these questions what parts of your life are worth replicating to others? What parts of your life would you rather people not copy? What parts of your life would you rather people not know about? What areas of life do you know you need transformation in? And does it make you feel a little hopeless? I kind of want us to feel really hopeless. That's messed up, right? But I kind of want us to like dwell there for a little bit to say what... Don't I want people to know about what don't I think I'm getting I'm not getting right what shouldn't I give to the next person what shouldn't I pass down to my kids and feel a little bit hopeless to realize that we've tried we tried we tried and we failed and we failed and we failed and we, failed, and we, failed, and we have no hope it's been going on for 12 years and we can't fix it we got to reach out for Jesus all we have to do is come i want us to feel a little bit hopeless because i think that's where the good news finally hits us and we find that he's our hope we have to stop ignoring these places that we're overlooking. We have to stop not dealing with it. I mean, Jesus raised the dead. Jesus raised the dead. We're not just talking about himself, like with the one that we all know about. This is a little girl. She's dead, and he goes to her, and he, he raises her from the dead. That's crazy, right? Jesus raises the dead. He heals the blind. He casts out demons. He invites nasty tax collectors and sinners to eat with him and to come and be changed by him. Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is my only hope. He can change us. What I don't want is for us to get convicted of sin this morning and then go to try to handle it on our own. That's not the point. Don't find an area of your life you're not submitting to Christ and then go try to fix it. What I want is for us to turn to him. It's just not the gospel to think that you have to go fix it. The gospel is that he can change you. Jesus wants to convict you of your sin, so you need mm-hmm. so your need for him, so you have a need for him and you believe that he can change everything. So how can you believe and how can you come to him? That's the last question. This is it, right? Just a very mm-hmm. practical thing. I'm just gonna give you one thing to try that I think is pretty good. One very practical thing. How can you believe? How can you come to him?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If there's one thing I think I'd encourage you to just speak up like to acknowledge your sin, to go deal with it, to find it, to find where you're hopeless and say you need hope, and then to speak up and tell somebody, to tell your family, to tell your DNA partners, to tell your missional community. We're going to have people in the back praying right after this. You can go and tell them and ask them to pray for you. Speak up. Say it. Confess where you need him. Just come that way. 1 John 1.9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What it doesn't say is that if we confess our sins, we can come up with a good plan to make this work and we can make ourselves righteous. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. I hope you hear it in there that Jesus didn't come to get you to change yourself. Jesus came to change you. Now over the next few minutes, we're going to move into a time of response. And we're going to do a few things that we do every week, right? The band will come and they're going to lead us in worship through song. And that's a time where you can sit and reflect. You can even begin to ask yourself those questions of what should I replicate? What shouldn't I replicate? Where am I hopeless? What areas of my life am I not submitting to Christ? Maybe it's a time to ask God to help search your heart on those things. It's also a time to like remember that He's our only hope and we can stand and we can sing and we can worship God together and celebrate that. It's a time for response and that we have, a, we have a giving plate in the back. This is a place where you can give your tithes and your offerings. If you're a member here, your tithes and offerings. Uh, and it's a place where you can give and, and to remember that we can trust Him and that we, we have much to worship and that everything that we have is His already and that He's trustworthy also a time where we come and take communion so we come down this middle aisle just hear what i'm saying real quick because a lot of times we don't do this so if you just come down this middle aisle right and then you can like dip take the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice and in so doing we're remembering the body and the blood of jesus christ that was shed broken and shed for us that jesus christ is who he says he is that he came that he lived that he healed people that he changed sinners that he's dealt with sin once and for all that he rose again, and that, he re- that he was re- resurrected, that he ascended to heaven, that he's at the right uh, right hand of God the Father and that he's got authority and that he's given us the Holy Spirit. We're making a confession of the gospel here. We're just remembering that Jesus is who he says he is and he's done what he said he would do and he's not here just to make us feel bad and tell us to change. Jesus came to change us. And as we come to do this, we're remembering that and we're telling each other the same thing in our actions. Jesus went about in chapter 9 doing some actions to very clearly say what his mission was and what he was about. In our actions, we're saying what Jesus does and what he's about. If you're a Christian, we invite you to come and take, whether you're a member here or not. Um, If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to come, because you can't say that. And this is you saying something, that you believe in Jesus, that he's saved your, your life, and that he's your only hope. Instead of not coming, though, it's not because we don't like you, it's because we don't want you to say something that's not true. Instead, we'd ask you to hear what we're saying in our actions. Jesus came to change you. He didn't come to get you to change yourself. If you've heard that from the church, it's wrong. That's not the gospel. Jesus came to change you. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, like I said, we have people in the back. I can pray with you. You can grab me. You can grab somebody. We'll talk about it. And I'd love to tell you about Jesus, and I'd love to see you walk with him. So... I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move into this time. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for, again, just for Christ, for your great love for us, for for coming to deal with our brokenness and our sin. And we're just so hopeless. We're so unable to deal with it. If we just go back to the Old Testament Scriptures, we can just see the pattern over and over and over and over and over again, that nothing is ever able to deal with sin for us. Nothing's ever able to make us make ourselves righteous with you, to put us in the right relationship with you. And if that wasn't evidence enough, we we have our own lives to look at. What have we ever fixed? What symptoms have we ever corrected on our own? Much less the core issues of a broken heart of a self-righteous heart that thinks it's way better than it is, way more godly than it is. Father, I just pray that this morning you convict us and move us into a place of hopelessness for a moment so that we can remember that you're our only hope and that you have great compassion on us that you came to deal with sin once and for all and to change sinners. I pray, Father, that you change us this morning that you change us together and that you would change those in our city
1: and transform city- sinners in our city. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.